We have been introducing this subject, which I have entitled Perusing the Pentateuch, by noting just some basic and elementary things. One of those things that we considered last time was the authorship of the Pentateuch. Who wrote these first five books of the Bible? Well, obviously, the simple answer to that is God, because it is the Lord's Word. It is the Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ, in Luke chapter 24, referred to that part of the Bible as the Scriptures. He expounded unto those that were on the Emmaus Road, in the Scriptures, the things concerning himself, and that included Moses, or the law of Moses. We know it's God's Word, but it's also a Word that was given by God to a particular man, to Moses. And we were able to say that there are a number of different internal evidences in Scripture showing that Moses, in fact, was the author of the five books that bear the name, the five books of Moses. A writer called Oswald T. Alice has enumerated examples that highlight the serious error of critics in denying Moses' authorship of the Pentateuch. I'm not going to take any more time to examine those particular errors or, or the writings of those heretics. But one thing that we always have to emphasize regarding this issue, and it's very simple, the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave his stamp of approval, his imprimatur, to the Mosaic authorship of the first five books of the Bible. For example, in John chapter 5, a verse that we have uh, looked at a few times already, the Lord said, and I'm quoting here uh, from verse number 46, John 5 and 46, For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote of me. And again, as we look at the New Testament, we see that there are mentions made of Moses in relation to the Old Testament Scriptures. In John chapter 1 and verse 45, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him, notice this, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip believed that the law was written by Moses, and that that law spoke of Jesus of Nazareth. And again, there are other examples I could give. I don't want to multiply too many scriptures at this particular point. We have established it, I think, very well. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 9, Paul is writing about the ministry and he's writing about support and so on. And he says this in verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. And of course he's quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. But he calls it, doesn't he? The law of Moses. 
So, references to the law of Moses are actually replete in Scripture. There are many of them. And when we look at the Bible with a proper view of things, it's very, very clear that Moses wrote the five books that we refer to as the Pentateuch. Now, there are certain specific themes in the Pentateuch that we could study. For example, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, form the historical introduction of divine religion into the world. This is where it all starts. And this historical introduction is in five phases. Those five phases are the five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now each of these is a distinct and yet connected part of the whole. An essential and natural segment of an organic whole. There is a great unity in the Pentateuch. When you read all five books together, you'll see that they contain one message, even though they cover a very long period of time, actually from creation, when the Lord spoke everything into existence, to the death of Moses that's recorded at the end of Deuteronomy. Specifically, we should note that Genesis deals with the origin of the divine religion, and it also speaks of the origin of the people who were to be the guardians of that religion. We know it started out with individuals, then developed into a large family, and that large family then became a nation, the nation of Israel, and that happens in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, which literally means the way out, Exodus in itself is a word that means the way out. It's all about the people leaving bondage. And it's a wonderful picture of our salvation, as we shall see. But Exodus is all about the committing of the divine religion to that chosen people of Israel and the establishment of God's presence among them, particularly in relation to that structure known as the tabernacle. We've done some study in that in the past. The tabernacle was a dwelling place for God. The Lord actually told Moses when he gave him the pattern of the tabernacle to build it, he said, I will dwell there. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And it's interesting, is it not, that you go to John chapter 1 verse 14 and it says of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means tabernacled or dwelling in a tent. And that's what it's like for us when we live in this human body. It's like we're living in a tent which one day will be folded up the tent pins pulled up, and we will move on to the next life. So, we come then to Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, starting as it does with the offerings, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the trespass offerings, and so on, that book shows the methods of approach to God for worship on the part of that people. The people who were redeemed were to worship God in a particular way. They couldn't just make it up as they went along. It wasn't just something that they could do and say, well, I think this would be a great thing to do in God's worship. I think that would be something that would work for God's worship. No, the Lord gave them a pattern that they were to stick to. The Lord has revealed how He is to be worshipped. That's Leviticus. The book of Numbers then reveals the organization 
and the discipline of that people for their work. The word numbers suggests to us a numbering of the people. And there were two great census takings in that book that we can see as we read the book carefully. Then the final book of the five, Deuteronomy, it records the preparation of the people for entering into the promised land. They should have entered the land earlier, but they were kept out because of unbelief. And you can read all about that in the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 3, where it makes it very clear that they could not enter in because of unbelief. But now, this new generation that has risen up, apart from two old men, Joshua and Caleb, were now going to enter into the promised land where the divine religion was to be established. And so that's the message of Deuteronomy. But overall in the Pentateuch, uh, there is a specific theme. Uh, you could say there's a threefold message that is, impl- that is emphasized uh, in the Pentateuch. A threefold message. Now, some will be able to find other themes and if we study carefully, uh, we could find many other subjects uh, that are, if you like, subheadings or subtopics from these. But I've divided them into three. There is an historical message that is to do with the history. There is secondly a messianic message. And that is the application of these things to Christ. And then, of course, you have the message that is given to us, which is the spiritual message of the Pentateuch. So we're going to seek to look at those in turn, beginning with the historical message. If you scrutinize the five books of Moses really carefully, you're going to see that there's one purpose throughout those books. There's one great message. And the Pentateuch is a complete and connected account of the origin and development of divine redemption. Now let me just say this, that the history of the Bible, all of it, is redemptive history. It's all focused on that one great subject of redemption. It starts out with the promise of a Redeemer. And through the Old Testament, you have the development of that seed promise. Through the prophets and the kings, and you see how various ones that are born are of a certain line that lead up to the time of the birth of Christ. And you read in Matthew chapter 1, and again in Luke's Gospel chapter number 3, about these genealogies, about the the men who begat so-and-so and begat so-and-so. You see the whole line leading up to Joseph, the line leading up to Mary, according to the flesh. And you can see through that the development of the theme of Messiah coming. The Messiah, of course, is Christ. The Lord Jesus himself is the Messiah. He's the Redeemer. The Redeemer who was promised all the way through the Old Testament. He appears in the New Testament. And he accomplishes redemption, as we see it there in the Gospels. And so the entire history of the Bible is a redemptive history. It's all about redemption. 
It's all about God visiting mankind and bringing out of them a people for himself. There is a unity of design in the Pentateuch, furthermore, that presupposes what I've already been stating, which is that there's one single author. There are some, I will call them heretics, who have said that the five books purporting to be from Moses are actually collated from a whole variety of different authors and different sources. Over many hundreds of years, I'm not going to uh, scotch that theory today. Oswald Alice has done that very well in his book on the five books of Moses. But as you look at the Pentateuch itself, it's very clear that none of the five books, whether it be Genesis or Numbers or Deuteronomy, whatever, none of those books is complete in itself. Nor is any one of those books free from any reference to the others. They're interconnected. And you can see that very clearly as you read through, which is why I would encourage people always to read the Pentateuch through at one sitting. Not necessarily on the same day, right enough. But you should start out at Genesis chapter 1 and don't finish until you get to the end of Deuteronomy. And you'll see this, what I'm saying is to be true. That there's an interconnected message, even though there's one thing in these books. And you can compare the first words of each of the books. And you can see the historical threads that run through all of them. Now the story of redemption is continued and it is developed throughout. In Genesis, then into Exodus. Then you have a period where the Lord gives some details about the offerings. And then he takes up the history again a little bit. Then you have history in Numbers and you have history in Deuteronomy. The whole thing is history apart from that section in Leviticus that deals with the work that took place within the tabernacle, the offerings, the sacrifices that were to be made. But the story of redemption is continued throughout the five books. And there's legislation, laws in these books. It's continued there and it's connected and it is progressive. And you can see how the Lord, when there's a, a family, then it turns into a nation, if you like. The Lord sends laws or, or he establishes laws for the right order of that nation so that they can have a proper system of jurisprudence. They can have justice. Uh, they can have proper law. They can operate as a nation under law. This is the message of the Pentateuch. And all the later books of the Bible that follow, they either imply or they definitely refer to the existence of the Pentateuch. That's why you will read in the Psalms, you'll read in various of the prophets and in the New Testament, many different references to things that happened in the first five books of Moses. It'll mention Moses. It'll mention some of the things that took place. For instance, when you read through the book of Psalms, you see that there's history given. In some of the Psalms, there's an actual rehearsing of the history of Israel to that point, And it'll talk about things like the crossing of the Red Sea. It'll talk about things like the crossing of the River Jordan. It'll speak about Jericho. There's various things that are mentioned. Even in the book of Psalms, it talks about 
God giving manna from heaven, angels' food, where the people said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And he shows how God did that for his people. So, all the later books of the Bible, they either imply or they definitely refer to the existence of the Pentateuch. The Bible is all connected. Now, as to the period of time of this history that each book covers, we can say definitively that the book of Genesis covers thousands of years, well over two and a half millennia, over two and a half thousand years from Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 50. But the book of Exodus only covers 145 years. You know how long Leviticus covers? 30 days. The book of Numbers covers 39 years, the period of wandering in the wilderness, while Deuteronomy is a history of only 40 days. So this is just a matter of interest to us. The writer Griffith Thomas said, quote, There was ample time for changes among the people of Israel from the period of Sinai, when the law was given, to that of Jordan, when they crossed over into the Promised Land. Their laws needed modification through circumstances. This can be seen even in one book. And he gives an example. Let me turn to Numbers chapter 4. Numbers chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Take the sum of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi after their families by the house of their fathers. Now you go to chapter 8 of Numbers and verse 24. There it says that the Lord spake to Moses saying, This is it that belongeth unto the Levites from twenty and five years old and upward. They shall go in to wait upon the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. So you see, at the beginning, in chapter 4, in the first few verses, it gives the detail of who is to be involved. The sons of Kohath, from among the sons of Levi, after the families, blah, 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 from 30 years old and upward. But then when you come to chapter 8, there is this modification, where it is strictly that which belongeth to the Levites, from 25 years old and upward. There was a modification of the law because of circumstances. And there are other examples of this that I could give that I won't get into today. But as a nation develops, there are situations that arise that need a method of dealing with those situations. And that's what God did. He provided laws that were for the people for that particular time. And there was a large amount of change in a short period of time that suggested what Griffith Thomas called an important historical crisis. The historical message of the books is very clear. I'm just mentioning it right now, but I want to proceed to what I believe is really the heart of the Pentateuch. Yes, the history is important. Yes, the history is literal history. 
And we will get into that when we talk about certain things that happened. It's not parabolic. It's not fairy tales. It's not some sort of way that God is speaking of something using examples that are not real. But it's actual history. When we talk about creation, when we talk about the creation of man, when we talk about the fall of man, Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3, it is not parables, it's history. We must be very clear on that. These things actually happened. There were such people as Adam and Eve. And if there was no Adam, let me tell you, there's no Christ. If there was not such a person as Adam, there is not such a person as Jesus Christ. This is how important it is. Because the Bible that speaks clearly of one as a historical figure, speaks of the other as an historical figure. In Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. But there is a messianic message. That's my second point today. The messianic message. What do we mean by a messianic message? Well, a message about the Messiah. As the Jews would put it, Mashiach. The anointed one. The Christ. When you talk about the Christ, it literally means the anointed one. And any time the Bible talks about Christ, it's referring to the Messiah. The one who was to come. The prophet who was to come. And throughout the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, there are direct prophecies concerning Christ. And you will see that they increase in clearness as you go along. They become more and more clear. The very first promise in the Bible of Christ, you will see in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This is a pivotal verse when it comes to biblical theology. And it's interesting to me that some of the modern translations have tampered with this verse. And for me that's not an accident. But here's what it reads in our authorized version. Genesis 3.15. God is speaking. And he's speaking to the serpent. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. In other words, she'll be your enemy and you'll be her enemy. And between thy seed and her seed. The woman has a seed. The woman has a progeny. Children that will be born from her. The devil, the serpent, has a seed. They're called the children of the devil. So there's going to be enmity, God says, between the serpent and the woman, and between the serpent's seed and her seed. And her seed is a direct reference, not just to children, plural, who would be born, but to Christ himself. And I'll show you in the Bible clearly, that the seed promise focuses on both an individual person and those who are in him. For those that are in Christ are his seed as well. But here he says this, It, that is the seed of the woman, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is what is called in theology the proto-evangel. Or the proto-evangelion. It is the first gospel promise in the Bible. This is the very first promise of God 
concerning the coming of the Messiah, the seed of the woman. And it is implicit in that promise that he will destroy the serpent. He will trample upon the serpent's head. He will bruise his head. That is a messianic message. But from there, you read not only about the woman's seed, but the seed of Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. And I'm just picking out individual verses here that speak to this. But in Genesis chapter 22, and in verse number 16, the Lord says, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now let me emphasize that the word seed has a twofold application there. The seed includes all the progeny of Abraham that would come in the future. That is the line of Abraham, his children, they're his seed. The first one being Isaac. But ultimately the seed is a reference to Christ. And if you read in the book of Galatians, you'll see that that is made very, very clear. The book of Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament, showing again the wonderful unity that there is in the Bible between the Old and the New Testaments. In Galatians chapter 3, you'll see that it mentions the promise that God gave to Abraham. You see this in verse 16 of Galatians 3. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one unto thy seed, which is Christ. See this. The seed of Abraham is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And obviously as you read through the Pentateuch, there are many other references to the Messiah to come. You have in Genesis 49 verse 10, mention made of Shiloh. That's an interesting reference. Talks about until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Genesis 49 verse 10, the words of Jacob on his deathbed, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now when he talks about a scepter, that's something that's held by a king. A scepter suggests royalty. This is someone who sits on the throne. So the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. So you can also speak about Christ, not only as a king, but as a priest, from whose lips goes forth the law. But it says, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And that is a direct reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we move through 
to the book of Exodus. We come to Exodus chapter 12. There we have the establishment, the setting up of the Passover. The Passover feast. You have the lamb that is chosen out. And as I've often pointed out, you can read through Exodus chapter 12. And you will look in vain for any reference to the lamb plural. In other words, lambs. You will never read that. And if you do, you haven't got the authorized version. Lambs is not there. Even though when you think about it, there must have been thousands of lambs that were killed that night. Thousands of them. Because of those that were in Egypt at that time, the Israelites, at that particular point, it's reckoned they were in the millions. So how many lambs would they need for the Israelite houses to paint the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of each house? How many lambs would they need? Far more than one. But look at the chapter. And you'll see it as I read quickly through Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. They shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. Verse 4, if the household be too little for the lamb. Again at the end of the verse, your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb. Verse 6 says, you shall keep it. They shall kill it. Again, as we read on down the chapter, verse 11 says, And thus shall ye eat it. See that? Is that an accident? Is that some sort of an oversight on God's part, where he should have written lambs, but he just talked about singular all the time? No, it's because there's only one lamb. There is only one Passover lamb, ultimately. That's the one that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. Even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. The Passover, in so many aspects, speaks of Christ. And I'm not going to preach a message on that today. But what a wonderful study the Passover is in relation to the Messiah. Of course, you have then references made in in Numbers 24, 17, to the star and the scepter. You go to the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, and you'll see that Christ is referred to as the bright and morning star. He's the star. He's the scepter. He's the one who rules. He's the king. Numbers 24, 17. Then again, Christ is referred to in Deuteronomy, chapter 18. And there he is identified as the prophet of his people. God's talking to Moses. God says to Moses, verse 15, of Deuteronomy 18, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet, capital P, from the midst of thee, all thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. This is Moses, who is the speaker. He says, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet, like unto me. You go further down the chapter to verse 18, and the Lord is speaking. And he says, I will raise them up a prophet, capital P, from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. It's referring to the Lord Jesus. And that's confirmed in the New Testament. 
in the book of Acts chapter 3, when Peter is preaching. And Peter says in Acts 3 verse 22, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. That prophet is Jesus. I say the Pentateuch is filled with messianic prophecies. And as well as direct prophecies of Christ, there are also prophetic types. There are picture prophecies of the Lord. For example, Adam himself. And you can read about Adam, the whole history, his creation, right through to his fall and then his death in Genesis chapters 2 through to 5. Of course, he is a type of Christ by comparison, but also by contrast. Because, for example, Adam was created perfect. Jesus was not created. The Jehovah's Witnesses, so-called, will tell you that he was a creation of God. He wasn't a creation of God. He is the creator. Adam was created, however. Adam was the first man. But Christ is a man, because he took on him our humanity without sin, without Adam's transgression being imputed to him at that point. Now, obviously, as you read this scripture, you see that there's this likeness drawn between Adam and Christ, or this contrast. You have those that are of Adam's line, you have those who are of, of the line of Christ. And today, let me tell you, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Adam is the federal head of the race. Christ is the head of the elect race. And you're either still in Adam, if you're a sinner, without Christ, or you're in Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, In Adam all die. In Christ shall all be made alive. The first Adam... It speaks of him there in 1 Corinthians 15. And it speaks of the, the second man, the Lord from heaven, the last Adam. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus. Adam is a prophetic type of Christ. There's another prophetic type of Christ in Genesis, and that's Abel. We know about Cain and Abel, don't we? Two brothers. One brings the offering, the work of his hands, the other brings the firstling of the flock. He comes God's way. The way of the blood. The way of sacrifice by blood. Cain comes offering what's essentially the works of his own hands. And it's not that he didn't come with sincerity. It's not that he didn't offer what he had unto the Lord. He did. But he came with the wrong offering. And because God didn't accept that offering, but he accepted Abel's offering, which pictures Christ, Abel becomes a type of Christ in himself in that his blood is shed. Notice in the book of Hebrews, where the Lord says, there's blood that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See, Abel's blood cried unto God from the ground for vengeance. Christ's blood cries out, for salvation for his people who are resting in him. Abel is a type 
of the Messiah. Again, again, I say there are picture prophecies of Christ. We've looked at some of these in our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Think about the Day of Atonement. What a wonderful picture you have there in Yom Kippur of the Messiah. You have the sin offering under two typical facets. You have the, the goat that was killed, the slain goat. You have the goat that was then sent out into the wilderness with the sins laid upon him, the scapegoat or the Azazel. I was speaking to a friend yesterday, or not yesterday, but earlier this month, and uh, he was telling me that in the Jewish faith, among Jewish people, there is a phrase that they use, uh, kind of akin to you and I saying to someone, get away, get away of this, get away from me. And the phrase that they use has to do with that Hebrew word Azazel, the scapegoat. And basically what happened to the scapegoat was that he was sent away into the wilderness out of sight with the sins of the people upon him. What an amazing thing that is. That the Lord Jesus Christ took our sins in his own person and he took them away out of God's sight and out of our sight. So that as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Read Leviticus chapter 16 along with Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Do that. Even when you go home this afternoon you can do it. Read Leviticus 16 and then read Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 and you'll see the significance of what happened on the day of atonement in relation to the Messiah to Christ again there are other examples that I could give we think about the red heifer the red heifer that was killed and its ashes sprinkled in a clean place that's in Numbers chapter 19 but you can compare with that Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 13, where it says, Hebrews 9, 13, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So right there, the Holy Spirit is making the link between the red heifer of Numbers 19 and Christ. We don't have to guess at it. We know it's a prophecy about the Messiah because the Lord has pointed it out. The same is true of the brazen serpent. No doubt many of you will know about this story. In Numbers chapter 21, people were being bit by snakes. They were dying left and right of these snake bites. And Moses came to God and crying out to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I want you to take a serpent or make manufacture a serpent of brass and put it on a pole and set that brazen serpent up in the midst of the camp so that whoever is bitten by a snake immediately when he looks upon that snake on the pole he will be healed. And that's what happened. And Moses put that brass serpent in the middle of the camp and people who were bitten by snakes immediately looked in the direction of that serpent on the pole and they were healed in an instant 
And Nicodemus, that member of the Sanhedrin who came to Jesus by night, knew all about that story. He was a student of the Old Testament. He knew exactly what happened in Numbers chapter 21. And so the Lord Jesus uses that and he says in John 3 verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, again, here's the Lord putting his stamp of approval on Old Testament history. To the people who were trying to tell you, oh, well, Moses never did that. Well, Jesus said he did. So if the Lord Jesus said he did, then it, that happened. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he's talking about that serpent of brass and put it on a pole, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's referring to himself, the Lord Jesus, being lifted up on a pole, as it were, on the cross. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Lord Jesus is like that serpent on the pole. All people have to do, who are feeling the effects of sin, who are bitten by the snake bite of sin, they have to look away to Christ by faith for salvation, and he will save them. This is the gospel clearly preached by our Lord Jesus. And then in the Messianic themes, there are typical scenes and ordinances in the Pentateuch. I haven't time to deal with these in any detail, but you have paradise itself pictured in the Garden of Eden. You can read the early part of Genesis and then go to Revelation chapter 22. And it speaks there of the tree of life. And it speaks there of paradise. When the thief was on the cross... The Lord Jesus told him, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. When the Apostle Paul was caught up into the third heaven, he said he was caught up into paradise. There are some people with a stupid notion that paradise is in the centre of the earth. It's not. It's in heaven. It's in glory. That's paradise. You don't get caught up into the centre of the earth. You get caught up into paradise. But it's, a, it's pictured by the Garden of Eden. Oh say will you go to the Eden above, the hymn writer said. How beautiful heaven must be. I can only imagine the beauty of the Garden of Eden in pristine condition before there was ever sin. There are some beautiful places on this earth, even now, after the effects of sin have been felt upon this earth. We all know about the seven wonders of the world and some of the most beautiful places that you can visit. Well, none of them, none of them are as beautiful as the Garden of Eden. God made paradise and put our first parents into that garden. What a beautiful, beautiful place it must have been. No sin until sin entered. But Eden is a type of heaven. It's a type of paradise. And there is an Eden above. How beautiful. How beautiful heaven must be. We can't imagine it. We think about the type in Genesis of the rainbow. See a lot of rainbows these days. Being used in honour of what God calls an abomination. Something that God hates. And by the way, one of the things that God says in the book of Proverbs that he hates is pride. 
he hates a proud look. There are people going about waving these rainbow flags and they have no idea what the rainbow stands for. Because as we read about it in Genesis, it was God that put that bow in the cloud, that beautiful rainbow. And it is a beautiful thing. You see, when the sun comes out and it's been raining and there's this, what is really reflected light, that's what it is. It's refracted light. And sometimes you get a double rainbow. And what a beautiful thing it is. But it always reminds me, not of this garbage that's being shoved down our throats today, where it used to be that we were punishing homosexuality and then we were told we had to accept homosexuality and that's not good enough anymore. Now we have to promote homosexuality and if you don't promote it, you're a bigot. You have to promote it. You have to make it a special thing. And they take God's covenant sign that he will never flood the world anymore with judgment. It really speaks of the gospel. And they've taken that And I will use the word, they have bastardized it by making it to speak of that which God abominates. But the rainbow itself is a covenant sign from our covenant-keeping God. And then you have the Ark of the Covenant or the Testimony. What a wonderful type that is. Then you have people who typify Christ as well in their circumstances. Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael. You can read all about it in the book of Galatians. The significance of those people. Esau and Jacob. The rite of circumcision. The sacrifices. The tabernacle. The priesthood. All of these things. Remind us of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the messianic character of the Pentateuch was confirmed to us by the words of the Lord Jesus himself when he said of Moses, he wrote of me. So you have a prophetic or you have a historical message, you have a messianic message which is prophetic in itself and then you have the spiritual message of the Pentateuch and I just want to mention that within this there's a progressive sequence in the five books Starting out with man's failure in Genesis, divine redemption in Exodus. Then you have worship and holiness in Leviticus. You have order and guidance in Numbers. And then you have preparation for inheritance in the promised land in Deuteronomy. You also have great principles here. The principle of ruin through sin. Redemption by blood and by power. You have religion. You have the removal and repetition. You have sin salvation, separation, sanctification and service. They're all here. All in principle. And then you have experiential growth shown in the Pentateuch. You've got man's condition, which is a sinful one. He falls into sin. But that leads to God's provision. And let me tell you, God's provision was there before man sinned. That's the wonderful truth of the gospel. You read in the scriptures in the New Testament that Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before there was sin, there was a remedy for sin. And so as you read through the Pentateuch, you'll see that there's access to God that's mentioned. There's progress in spiritual things. And there's a comparative fullness of blessing that's spoken of in the books as well as people go on with God and learn of Him. 
Now somebody gave a summary of the five books of the Pentateuch that I really liked. And this is what they said. Listen carefully. In Genesis, God selected a field in which to sow the seed of his law. That field, of course, was the Israelitish nation. In the book of Exodus, he purchased and secured that field. He bought it by blood. In Leviticus, he brought forth his seed. But he found the ground to be hard and thorny. Because in numbers, for 40 years, God has seemed to be plowing and clearing and preparing the field. But in Deuteronomy, he is again sowing the seed and harrowing it in. And it brings forth fruit in the end. Let me just emphasize again as we finish here. The verdict of Christ concerning the Pentateuch. With regard to our Lord's reference to the books of Moses, the Lord's testimony is peculiarly emphatic. The Lord didn't just make some passing reference to the Pentateuch. You'll see that the whole force of the argument again and again lies in the fact that the Lord Jesus regarded Moses not merely as a title by which certain books Uh, were to be known but as personally the actor in the history that those books record and the author of the legislation that they contain and the Lord condemned the traditions that the Pharisees had to overlay the laws and the teaching of Moses you know what the Lord said about that you're making the word of God of none effect by your tradition And notice what he calls the word of God. The writings of Moses. He believed that it was inspired. Remember that when the Lord spoke to the leper, he healed the leper and did this more than one time. He said, go thy way, show thyself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. He believed that Moses had actually written that in Matthew chapter 8 verse 4. You find that reference. And that command of Moses, by the way, To offer the leper offering a gift. It's found at the very heart of the priestly code. Which some higher critics would have us believe was formed and framed centuries after the days of Moses. Who do we believe? The higher critics or the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus made it clear that Moses commanded this. So again we have internal evidence of the authorship of Moses of the Bible. The integrity of Scripture is at stake when we tell people that Moses didn't write the first five books. Now we should also note, and I mentioned this before, but it's worthy of repetition, that when you go to Matthew chapter 4, the Lord Jesus Christ in his temptation in the wilderness selected Scriptures with which to answer the devil. And by the way, you and I can say, as Jesus did, it is written. The devil comes whispering his insinuations in your ear. How do you answer that? Well, you go to the scriptures. It is written. This is what God has said. Satan, this is what you're saying. This is what God says. That's how the Lord Jesus dealt with it. And you'll notice that the three conclusive answers to the tempter, it is written... We're taken from the book of Deuteronomy, from chapter 8, 
and two references from chapter 6. One man called these references pebbles from a clear brook selected by Christ. All from the book of Deuteronomy. I think that's interesting. You might have thought he would quote from some other part of the scripture. But you see, Deuteronomy is a book that has been assailed and attacked by critics more than any of the five books of Moses. A.M. Hodgkin remarks, We have been told that this book of Deuteronomy is a pious forgery of the time of Josiah, purporting to be written by Moses to give it greater weight and bringing about the much needed reforms. Would our Lord, who is himself the truth, have thus countenanced a book full of untruths and have used it in the critical moment of his conflict with the devil? And would not the father of lies have known perfectly well if the book had been a forgery? No, this is the word of God. The writings of Moses in which he speaks of Christ are the inspired scripture. And we read in our Bible reading today, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Profitable for teaching, for instruction and in righteousness, for correction and so on. It's important that we read our Bibles. In reading our Bibles, it's really important that we look for Christ therein. And so when you come to your Bible reading, you come to the Pentateuch, and I hope that you will read through it. It's always good to pray, Lord, as I read your word, show me Christ. Show me the Savior. Show me his person. Show me his redemptive work on our behalf. And surely our hearts will burn within us as the Lord talks to us by the way and as he opens to us the scriptures. May it be so as we read for his glory. Amen.